This podcast is brought to you by Mission Solar Energy, a solar module manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. Mission Solar Modules are designed, engineered, and assembled in their Texas-based 200-megawatt facility and serve residential, commercial, government, and utility applications. Adhering to the strictest quality standards, Mission Solar's modules outperform their competition in real-world conditions, proving to be an easy choice for installers, distributors, and developers. To find out more about Mission's high-power, American-quality modules, visit missionsolar.com. So what are you doing on December 12th and 13th? If it's not hanging out with GTM at our storage summit in San Francisco, I hope you have a good excuse, especially since podcast listeners get 20% off their tickets. For the last two years, this event has sold out, and we're already on our way to another sellout show. So there's a lot to cover this year. Here are a few examples. Utilities are getting serious about all kinds of storage for different grid needs. Have we reached an inflection point for long-term grid planning? State mandates on energy storage continue to move forward. What mechanism is best suited for building out a storage market? And a spate of M&A activity has occurred over the last 11 months, with notable activity including Enel's acquisition of Demand Energy and Wartzilla's acquisition of Greensmith. Um, we're going to hear from some of the companies that have been acquired and are doing the acquiring and talk about how these acquisitions are shaping the energy storage business. So again, Energy Gang listeners get 20% off their registration at GTM Storage Summit in San Francisco on December 12th and 13th. Come listen to experts, uh, network with them, and maybe sign some deals. Hope to see you there. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. This week, Congress considers a tax reform bill with some poison pills for renewables, Elon Musk breaks out his portal gun, and experts warn that European nuke closures spell problems for climate. I'm Stephen Lacey, GTM Editor-in-Chief in Boston. We are recording on a Thursday afternoon like usual, and there are a couple top stories swirling around us as we speak that may change a bit by the time you hear this. So firstly, taxes. The House is voting on a tax package today. In fact, right now, as we record on Thursday afternoon, that we're going to discuss. Uh, no surprises that the House is going to pass that bill, but you know the, the political dynamics are always changing. It has some pretty drastic consequences for renewable energy companies. And by that, I mean it's already having a chilling effect on projects. And we'll try to anticipate the political chess match before the pieces move. So Catherine's going to help us understand the Washington dynamic. And then tonight at 8 p.m. Pacific, Elon Musk will bring out Tesla's latest shiny object. Um, hard to get all of these objects straight now. It is the electric semi-truck. Our senior editor, Julia Piper, will be at the Tesla unveiling event, so we'll get a report up from her on GTM tonight, but we're going to be talking about it today without having seen it. Um, but there's always a lot to talk about with Tesla. In the wake of the Model 3 delays, there's been more bearish financial an analysis. And this week, Rolling Stone has a new profile of Musk actually posted last night. So we're going to use those as a guide to thinking about the semi-truck. Jigger, if you had to choose one as your primary vehicle, a Tesla electric semi-truck or a Hyperloop pod, which would you choose? Oh, a Hyperloop pod. I mean, I think <laughs> that thing goes like 500 miles an hour. Yeah, I mean, you're constantly bouncing back and forth between uh, D.C. and San Francisco, so it's perfect. Yeah, no, I'm I'm looking forward to the Hyperloop. So Jigger Shah is, uh, of course, in D.C. He's the president of Generate Capital. And Catherine Hamilton is uh, also with us from D.C. She's a partner at 30 North, 38 North Solutions. Catherine, 
Is there anything in this tax package for uh, Tesla's Hyperloop or the tunnel digging project? There is nothing as boring as that project. <laughs> oh, so we're going to talk taxes, which are uh, extremely exciting. Why don't you just tell us what's in the tax package? For anyone who's given up on uh, following politics at this point, I do want to remind folks what this tax effort is all about. I'm old enough to remember when it was branded as a noble process to reform the tax code. But now it's basically a health care bill that also helps the largest already cash-rich corporations to pay less in taxes. So uh, what is this thing we once called tax reform, Catherine? Yeah, so this thing, first of all, was only written by GOP leadership. So the rank-and-file members were not included in the process at all. Uh, the Democrats were not included at all. So this came out of about six people sitting in a room and saying, this is what we're going to do. And even those six people, which included House and Senate leadership, the House and Senate bills are very different from each other. So even though those people were the only ones in the room, what came out of their brains is different on each side. The House bill caused a lot of consternation uh, for especially the wind folks because it included a provision to terminate inflation, ad inflation adjustments in Section 45 for the production tax credit. So essentially that means that the value of the credit would go from 2.3 cents per kilowatt hour um, adjusted for inflation down to one and a half cents per kilowatt hour. Um, and it would also require continuous construction. The language around that was very vague. But basically, this would negate contracts that had already been put into place with prices predetermined. Um, so that caused a lot of consternation on the wind side. On the other hand, the orphaned credits, Section 48 credits, were added back in. So CHP, fuel cells, microturbines, small wind, um, and they were added back in. The EV credit was cut. So that was that was taken out. And I think in the end, the way we have to look at this is that this bill was not going to change. It didn't change during markup. It's not changing on the floor, not in any way um, that impacts the renewable energy credits to any real degree. Um, because what they needed to do was comply with the rules of reconciliation. Now, reconciliation, remember, in the Senate is where you can pass with just 51 votes, pass a bill. You don't need 60 votes. So they have to keep the bill below $1.5 trillion. Those are the rules of reconciliation. So the House was trying to raise money. That's basically what they were doing. And they kind of didn't really care about this tax credit. They figured it's a bunch of money. We can just, you know, if we do this, we can take that money and put it towards something else that we really want to have. So um, it was surprising during the markup because some folks like Tom Reed from New York, whom we thought was a real supporter and has lots of wind in his district, spoke out against the production tax credit. So that may end up coming back to bite him at some point. But um, really nothing changed. And it did deploy a lot of the wind industry to, to do a lot of communications work, to do ads. Um, but the House bill is going to pass the way it is. And those decisions were made far above the folks um, in the grassroots that were you know, that were really supportive of wind. So that will go through today. The, they're voting probably as we're taping now. Yeah, I know you're getting like text updates as we record. Yes, I am. So I'll let you guys know. At the same time, also, while we record, the Senate tax bill is being marked up in committee. So they expect to finish marking up today. And then next week, everybody's gone for Thanksgiving. 
Thanksgiving and they'll come back the week after Thanksgiving, the Senate will, and they expect to pass their bill on the Senate floor. And the Senate bill is going to look different from the House bill. And we'll have to see how different it's going to be. They do think that then they will need to go to conference to work out the differences in those bills. And the Senate, this is just from the point of view of the wind industry and the folks like Chuck Grassley, the senator from Iowa, who said, over my dead body, will the wind credits be removed? I mean, he's basically said, I'm not going to vote for the Senate bill if it has anything with removing credits for wind. So, you know, remember, they need 51 votes and they need his vote. So I cannot imagine that the Senate would, in a conference setting, recede to the House language. Um, That said, they've got to come up with some they're going to be doing some wheeling and dealing. So the Senate version does not have those orphan extenders, and it does have the EV credit. So it's like the opposite. They're opposites of each other. And I'm not sure who is going to end up winning out in all of that. Um, but I think that at least the production tax credit, it seems to be in pretty good shape based on senators saying we have to have that in there. I think they'll that, that will go with the Senate language. So we're energy centric here, but I don't think we should pretend like energy is, um, you know, energy tax reform, whether renewable energy tax credits or EV tax credits are in or out of this is going to affect the vote. It sounds like the repeal of the individual health care mandate and concerns about um, the lack of support for small businesses might uh, impact votes in the Senate. Yes, definitely. Um, also, the state and local credits, that will play into it. Um, so they need every single vote they can get. Um, and p- oddly enough, part of the calculus here is around the Roy Moore race. So um, if they they may find themselves in a time crunch where they can't get a conference of the two bills done before that special election. And if they fear that a Democrat will win, what they will try to do is just have the House vote on whatever the Senate passes and try to just take the Senate bill so they can get something done. And that would also alleviate the need for the Senate to, after conference, go back and get another vote from their caucus. All right. So so give me the over under here. You've got Ron Johnson, who's already said no, because it doesn't go far enough to hurt people. And then you've got, you know, Susan Collins and and, you know, others who are saying, what? You're getting rid of the individual mandate? And so like, I, how do they keep 49 Republican senators voting for this? Um, they're desperate. They really, really are. Um, I think you'll see um, whatever ends up on the Senate floor after Thanksgiving, there'll be a manager's amendment and they may try to make a few changes that will make people happy after the markup today and try to bu- get some of those votes back in. Um, they're desperate to get something done. And this has nothing to do with energy credits. This has to do with they need to show that they can get anything passed since they are in charge of the Congress, the White House, and the judiciary branch. You know, I I, I don't pretend to be a uh, political chess master, <laughs> but like I, I when they added the secretly added this repeal of the individual mandate, I said, why? Why? What? I mean, the chances of this passing in the Senate are so much slimmer now because of that. Because they need the money. Well, they and, need the money. Right. But you're saving $366 billion by denying people health care. Like, that's ludicrous. I mean, it's the same as the mortgage tax deduction that they're capping at $500,000. And now they're saying that people's 401ks might be capped. I mean, the whole thing just feels so 
Like, of course they did it in leadership. And of course they didn't ask anyone else's their opinion. Because if they had asked anyone else for their opinion, they would have said this bill is awful. Yeah, so the individual mandate repeal raises $300 billion, and that's $300 billion. They were already having trouble in the Senate making their numbers add up correctly. Um, but that allows them to have a little bit of horse trading so they can try to figure out, you know, where are the leverage points, where the pressure points. But you're right. I mean, this is not regular order. This is not a process that is seems very democratic in small d democratic where everybody's involved. And I mean, not only is healthcare a sixth of our economy, but this is the tax code is an enormous part of our economy, and it will really touch everybody. It, it also means that basically every Republican from California, New Jersey, and New York are going to lose their seat in the 2018 election. Those suburban families are getting screwed by this tax bill. Yeah, they're like the just, ones. Uh, yeah, they're the ones that are going to get hit the, the hardest. I think. Right. So it's just sort of like, okay, so you're going to get this tax bill done and then no one gets reelected. And so I just, the reason I say all this is because I just feel like nothing is going to get passed. And then we're like, what the heck? Like, what do we do with all of our energy credits and stuff that we need to pass? No, so we don't want, all right. So it would be good for solar and wind if there were no energy pieces in any of these bills. We just like let that 2015 omnibus deal stay the way it was. Don't touch them. It's the orphans that are the ones that are kind of left behind. However, there is talk also about a separate extenders package that could just take all of this stuff off the table, put it in a small extenders package and put that into a continuing resolution or omnibus bill that would have to go through. They have to keep the government open. So December 8th, they have to do something um, and maybe they'll just kind of kick the can down the road about six more weeks so then they can do a big omnibus bill. But they're talking about doing a small package that would take care of some of those credits that are really important to people like Senator Heller, who's going to have a really hard race. I want to make it very clear whether or not this package passes, which is looking increasingly unlikely because of the other politics that we just talked about. This is having a, an impact on businesses right now. At our Power and Renewables conference last week, you know, we had folks from Goldman Sachs and top developers like uh, Invenergy saying, you're breaking a previously agreed to tax reform promise. We've already been tax reformed. And now this is screwing up a lot of our development plans for deals that are have already been signed or getting, getting signed now. So like they're cha- looking to change the rules on continuous construction, which could have a negative consequence for projects that are like already in development. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of consternation and a lot of worry. Just the fact that this is on the table is a big deal. Yeah, it does cause investors to uh, get really nervous. And I think that was part of the problem that the wind folks have had. But uh, I don't think it would I don't think it would make it through with senators voting on it. Um And so I think that it's going to be safe. I'm glad that they still deployed and started making their case again, but I don't think it would could possibly make it through. And honestly, I wouldn't underestimate a tax bill going through, Stephen. I think if they can get 50 votes and uh, get Pence to come over for 51, they've got it done. Yeah. Okay. uh, I'll I'll defer to you on that one. Uh, You know, this brings me to a much larger thesis that I think has been taken as reality by... um, many in this industry and we've we've you know covered this on the podcast and and that is that republicans p- privately 
really do embrace renewable energy and, you know, tend to like renewable energy tax credits because, you know, 80% of the wind installed in this country is in Republican districts. A, a similarly high amount of solar is installed in Republican districts. And so behind the scenes, you know, they, su they support these tax credits. They support a phase out, but they want consistency for these industries. And what you're seeing is that they don't actually care about that. Like, you know, I would no, so what I you're seeing is that thesis, right? That like you all of a sudden have this much wider silent majority of support. No. So here's the thing. None of it is enough for them to not vote against a tax reform package for the GOP members. It just isn't. So it almost doesn't matter what you have in there. They have to vote for this package because they have to take something back that they've done. And that is much bigger than any kind of wind production tax credit to them. That just and so that's one piece is that who is not going to vote for it, especially in the House with with this one little piece in it. And the second thing is they weren't even part of the conversation to begin with. So members of the GOP who were on Ways and Means Committee and those who were not on Ways Com Means Committee, the same said to me, we have been told whatever Brady produces, Brady and Ryan produce, we have to vote for sight unseen. We have no choice. So let's just recall that uh, in 2015, we we got tax reform and a phase out for the investment and production tax credit. If we had much longer term extensions or permanent tax credits, I think it would be a much fairer conversation around how you phase these out or, or get rid of them. I will say if you're a conservative and you're skeptical of uh, the tax structure for renewables, uh, even with this phase out, I, I would recommend reading stuff from the R Street Institute. They have the best resource out there on broad energy tax reform. So looking at how you restructure taxes for every form of energy, and they don't just pick on the investment and production tax credit. They look at like what uh, what should be done in their eyes, and I think that's a you know a, a really intellectually honest, interesting way of, of looking at things. But I, I just will reiterate that. Uh, the, the tax reform has already happened for these industries. Yeah, and I would just say, I just want people to understand how things are supposed to work. <laughs> the way things are supposed to work is you go through a healthy committee process where you're able to discuss policy and offer amendments. The House passes something, the Senate passes something, and then you get together. I mean, I remember being in rooms where they were going through conference committees where they would horse trade. And granted, some of that was the benefit of being able um, – to do earmarks, because <laughs> you could say, I'll give you this if you give me that. But actually being able to talk through what policies are going to help whom, how is it going to work, and you come out with a better product when you allow more people to be part of the conversation. And that is not what's happening here. Okay, so just quickly to wrap up, remind us again, what will happen with the Senate in terms of time frame. Yeah, so the Senate is marking up in committee today, in Finance Committee. They're supposed to vote on the bill on the floor of the Senate when they get back from Thanksgiving break. Um, and then they're going to, evidently, depending on how much time they have, they'll go to conference and try to resolve differences between the House and the Senate bills. And then they'll take whatever that final version is back to the floor. It may be that they go out for the Christmas holiday and then they take the final vote right after the holidays. Um, but the the more thing, the more race is going to kind of factor into that as to whether they actually do a conference or just take the Senate bill. Damn it, Catherine, you never get to enjoy your holidays. There's always some tax thing swirling around. Oh, no, I still enjoy them. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a minute here to talk about our sponsor, Mission Solar Energy. Third-party testing has shown that Mission Solar modules have the highest PTC ratings of any American manufactured module. 
You know what that means? It means the modules maintain higher output in real-world conditions when compared to other American modules. Mission Solar's modules are subjected to multiple quality checks throughout the manufacturing process and endure stringent quality and reliability testing. Each product exceeds industry requirements and is backed by an independent 25-year linear warranty. To learn more about Mission Solar's high-quality modules and to see them get run over and shot by a tank and hit with a flamethrower, visit missionsolar.com. Thanks, Mission. Some big truckers here. You guys are the biggest guys in the business. I'm looking around. I read about you in all the magazines. Good. And you're the ones that make more money, though. It's It's supply demand. That's great. It's great to be with you, and I don't know who's starting it off. Should I start it off? I'll start it off. Remember that moment a few months back when President Trump climbed into the semi-truck, parked outside the White House, and blew the horn? That was probably the happiest day of his presidency, meeting with those truckers. I'm sure Elon Musk would offer Trump a seat in his new electric semi-truck, which we'll finally get a look at tonight when it's unveiled in Los Angeles. Teasing the truck on Twitter, Musk joked that it transforms into a robot, fights aliens, and makes one hell of a latte. Not everyone is laughing, though. Tesla is in the midst of a crazy complicated ramp-up in operations, and while the company deals with kinks at the Gigafactory and delays with the Model 3, it is burning through cash at a record pace. A lot of onlookers were anticipating this exact moment when things get real for Tesla as it tries to become a real car company and a real everything company, it seems. So is the semi-truck, which we've long known is coming, a convenient distraction for Musk as financial signs worsen, or yet another master plan step that most of us will never understand until much later. So we're going to know much more about the semi tonight after we tape, but Jigger, um... Where do you put this on the importance scale for Tesla? A distraction or a real market where it should be pursuing right now? So I like the semi-truck better than I like the Model 3. I mean, I think that the Model 3 will prove to be Tesla's undoing um, because I think it is a real car company, right? The Model 3 is a great car. Or sorry, the Model S is a great car. The Model X is getting better. And, you know, these are luxury cars. They can make them partially automated, partially by hand, and it works, right? The the margins are getting better. Um, it's the Model 3 that is really the conundrum, right? Because Tesla doesn't know how to make cars at scale like General Motors or BMW or Mercedes-Benz, right? They don't have that history um, to them, right? So the Model 3 is proving to be very frustrating, for Tesla, whereas the semi-truck, semi-trucks are expensive. I mean, you can make those things by hand, right? I mean, and so that still stays within the old model of you make 50000 a year. I mean, semi-trucks, if you made 50000 a year, you'd get most of the market. So you think Tesla would excel in a much lower volume business right now? They would have been far better off by just continue, continuing the luxury line, right? Having a sedan, having a, you know, an SUV, introducing a crossover, right? I mean, and just staying with luxury cars, um, they were still doing what they were doing, right? I mean, it's still the case that the Tesla Model S has revolutionized the world and that all of the major car companies in the world are doing electric vehicles because of Tesla. So they would still have that, but they'd also not be burning as much cash. You know, interestingly, Tesla's billed as this like everything company, but I think over 85% of its revenue actually comes from the car business. Is that? It's more, yeah. right? And their powertrain. That's the yeah. most profitable part. So, yeah. 
It's um, like, so I think Solar City is down to 8% or 7% of revenue, although they are um, achieving profitability for the first time, which is great. Catherine, what's your take? I mean, Jigger talked about Musk's need to spin this new narrative, and we were passing around this Rolling Stone article that came out uh, last night, and I think the remark from all of us was like, well, I mean, here he is putting out another narrative, like right before this big event when a lot of people are you know, raising uh, more worries about the health of the company. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, he knows how to control the story, and he definitely does. He creates a, a lot of news and knows how to work it. So, um, yeah, he's he's been a good business person. He's been a good innovator, but he also knows how to distract with music streaming, autopilot software, the the boring company Neuralink, that then like the brains to computer thing that he's doing. Um, in addition to the solar and all of the storage technologies, which are really good, hyperlink. Semi-Trunk, they just bought this Perbix, this automated factory company. Um, They're trying to do a lot of stuff at once. And some of it seems a little out of the sweet spot, but maybe it all kind of just is part of his narrative that he's created. Well, the semis also benefit greatly from the um, automated driving, right? I mean, the thing about Tesla is they sort of toe the line around the law, right? When they first came out with the Model S, that screen that they had in the Model S was was patently illegal, right? The Federal Department of Transportation was like, it is not, you're not allowed to have a screen that big in a car because it's distracting. And Tesla was like, well, we're kind of doing it. And the DOT actually revised its, like, you know, regulations to allow them to do it, which is fine. Um, And I think they're going to do the same thing with the semi-truck. I think they're going to say, we're going to make it fully automated as fast as possible. And it's mostly on highways anyway. And so it sort of works. And uh, I think DOT is going to say, we're still in pilot mode. And they're going to say, well, I think we kind of already passed you. What I'm still trying to figure out is why Musk is such a hypocrite. I mean, he talks about artificial intelligence taking over the world. And then he rolls out this AI-driven semi-truck. Hasn't he ever seen the movie Maximum Overdrive based on the book by Stephen King? I mean, this is when all these trucks come alive and start killing people. So if he's really concerned about AI, he shouldn't be designing an AI semi-truck. I hope you, or the I last, hope you hear the humor here. <laughs> <laughs> or the last Fast and the Furious. <laughs> or no, there, there's actually a citizen of Saudi Arabia now who is a robot. So maybe that robot will, citizen of Saudi Arabia, will drive one of those semis. Oh, that's obnoxious. Like, I mean, they'll make a robot a citizen of Saudi Arabia, but all the refugees there can never be a citizen. Um uh, you know, look, I look, I, I think Elon's extraordinary. I don't want to take anything away from him. I, I think that the, you know, that Tesla has been a force for good in the world. Um, they certainly have been a force for good in batteries as well. Um, but I, I really do think that as a company, um, it's really difficult to see how, um, you know, that you can sort of get your arms around how they're going to continue to be working towards getting to a profit. I don't want to give too much away here, but we've got a story that we're working on about some serious delays with Powerwall deliveries. I mean, Tesla is facing problems with battery delivery as well. Yeah, although that's partially of their own doing, right? I mean, Elon basically made up this big narrative and then got this big order for 100 megawatts in Australia. And he's basically starving the rest of the business units to get those batteries to be able to fulfill that order. Uh, Catherine, you... um, 
you you were talking about this Financial Times story on electric vehicles, which Tesla was tweeting about this week, pushing back on the article itself. Yeah, it was news when I was over in Dubai last week, um, and we're I'm on this Future of Energy. I'm co-chair of this Future of Energy Council, and some of the folks said, hey, did you see this article that green driving's, driving's dirty little secret, that all these Tesla cars uh, pollute more and have more CO2 emissions than regular internal combustion cars. And so so I was really glad to see that uh, MIT, that actually did the research that this article was, was based on, pushed back pretty significantly because the article um, compares a Mitsubishi, Mitsubishi Mirage to one type of electric car, a Tesla Model S. And it was really, it's really apples to oranges, pitting kind of this luxury high-powered model against a subcompact low-power um, gas model. Um, and so, and they also used carbon intensive grids, like in the US Midwest, rather than, you know, a grid that as you start deploying more electric vehicles, and as you do start deploying more clean energy technologies, which Tesla is, of course, working on, the grid gets cleaner and cleaner. And so they really pushed back hard, because of course, they said, as the carbon footprint of electricity continues to fall, um, the gap will definitely widen EVs have the potential to uh, mitigate climate change far more than you know, oil-based, petrol-based cars do. Well, I think that's true. But I, look, I, I do think that that article, though, from the Financial Times does have some merit, not because of the the coal power piece of it. I agree with Catherine. I mean, we're, we're on track to decarbonizing the electricity grid. It's really more about the fact that, I you know, we talked about this before on the show, this notion that we're going to convert all of our vehicles in the world into electric vehicles, and that's going to save the planet is a false narrative. And I think we all need to sort of acknowledge that like, we actually need less cars, we need like urban planning, we need people to be able to get to work without using a car. Um, And all of those sort of pieces sometimes get lost in this sort of, um, you know, tech dream of just being able to convert the power, you know, train from um, from fossil fuels to electric. Well, if you're living in that tech dream, tonight's your night. We'll have more on that semi unveiling. But that's uh, just a few of our thoughts as we await the next product from Musk. I guess I would just say one last thing, you know, to the president, get up in the cab of that Tesla semi and honk the horn. You had so much fun doing in front of the White House. This is your next opportunity to support American innovation. Through day and night and all kinds of weather, truckers course the arteries of our nation's highways. You carry anything and everything, the food that stocks our shelves, the fuel that runs our cars, and the steel that builds our cities. You think I wrote that? It's not bad. (laughs) Save that. I I want to save that paragraph. Our last conversation is about nuclear and global carbon emissions. This is actually um, a nice compliment to Catherine's mention of that Financial Times article. You know, we are decarbonizing the grid, but how fast, really how fast? And and that's like a worry for a lot of people. Last week, IEA chief economist Laszlo Varro spoke at an energy event in London, and I was drawn to some of the comments that he made reported by Recharge News. He backed up earlier IEA warnings about the emissions gap left by closing nuclear plants, saying that renewables need to grow at twice the speed in order to make up for retiring nukes in Europe. Varro said, quote, in fact, if I dig through the current decommissioning schedules of nuclear reactors in Europe, by the mid-2020s, 
Europe is going to lose nuclear production at roughly twice the rate of recent deployment of wind and solar production. Meanwhile, this week, a group of researchers said that global emissions are on the rise again after a three-year period of stabilization. It's an important reminder that we're facing a dire emissions picture despite the growth in renewables. You can have two things at the same time, astonishing growth in clean energy and growth in emissions. So what does it tell us? Um, Catherine, I want to turn to you first on this because you're doing more international travel these days with various groups, including the World Economic Forum. You've been very involved. Is this a challenge discussed candidly at forums like that? Yes, it's a huge challenge. And one of the biggest challenges is actually forecasting. (laughs) So what does this mean? How are you really able to forecast with any degree of certainty, given that the world is built on uncertainties. And IHS Market just did kind of a comparison of long-term energy outlooks, where they said, you know, there are big technology uncertainties. We don't know which technologies are going to move forward. Um, humans, you know, they're, you don't know how humans are going to engage and change and kind of nudge us one way or another. Um, energy efficiency is a big uncertainty. And, you know, how much of that are we going to unlock? That seems to be something that is really untapped. And also natural gas. What's, what is, how's natural gas going to impact this? And I think that's kind of what the IEA saw too in the report card, which showed that EVs, storage, and renewables were doing, were on track. Of course, they're not on track as fast as they need to be, but they're on track. Um, kind of middle of the road were nuclear, gas, industrial facilities, if their transition, and mobility more broadly, like aviation and rail. And then the folks that, you know, what was not performing at all was really um, a faster reduction in coal, um, any kind of CCS coming online in a viable way, and advanced biofuels. Those were kind of the big categories for them. But I think forecasting in and of itself is problematic. Well, you know, you wouldn't say. What about the Energy Information Administration? <laughs> I was waiting for you to talk about them. <laughs> well, look, IEA and EIA, they're historically um, conservative, to say it lightly. And we, of course, have talked about that very often. Um, but IEA is is n- not as conservative anymore. So they recently put out a report saying that we can achieve universal energy access by, I think, 2030 with basically only renewables. But it's also simultaneously saying renewables can't make up for closing nuclear power plants. IEA and EIA have shifted in the way they're gathering data and looked at potential scenarios for growth. So I don't know that this is um, this is just a question of IEA being overly conservative this time. No, no, I don't think IEA is being conservative. I, look, I have said many times on this podcast that I don't think renewable energies can be expected to scale up as fast as environmentalists want to shut down nuclear plants. I do think that all of the nuclear plants, whether they're in Europe or in the United States, should be allowed to run even if we have to subsidize them to the end of their lifespan, which is probably sort of to that 2030, 2035 range. Um, And I think by that point, we will be able to replace them all with um, renewable energy or other types of uh, low carbon, carbon free technologies. Yeah, one thing that these forecasts don't seem to know how to account for are kind of a systems approach where you also look at the load side as a resource. So how efficiency and demand response, who is which is vastly underutilized, um, edge of grid becomes much more 
part of the sort of the resource and not just grid scale. It just seems like that is often the you know the big piece that's left out or not really truly accounted for. And we don't really know how people are going to change their behavior. Uh, you know, I I feel like there's going to be a, some nonlinear growth in clean energy um, that is not being accounted for. Well, the other piece of it is that there's just a lot of other areas of growth for us. I mean, I was just talking to um, some hydro developers who figured out how to take their small micro hydro dams and convert them into 30 minutes to uh, to three hours of storage. And so they're now trying to figure out how to monetize that um, in their particular ISOs. Um, you know, flywheel companies are coming back. I think, you know, there's a lot of studies now showing that the actual generators within wind turbines actually have a lot of inertial mass that can help to stabilize frequency and voltage for the grid. Um, and so I think there's a tremendous amount of benefit that our current technologies can provide. I mean, solar inverters have provided these advanced services or been capable of providing these advanced services for years, but you know, um, IEEE 1547 didn't allow them to provide these services, and that's being changed. And so I do think that this integration issue is one that people like to talk about a lot just because it's it's always fun to, like, say, well, now that you've hit this milestone, here are the next three hurdles you have to cross. Um, but I really do think that we're on track to hitting 80% renewables, and I don't think we're going to have these huge engineering problems in getting there. The markets will have to be radically altered, but I think we've already been talking about that as well. And I do think that the AI work that Google's been doing with National Grid will help, right? Because the the whole point of this is that we are moving to a more complex grid, which requires the computing power necessary to keep up with all the moving pieces, which is something that I think utilities and ISOs have, have pushed back on for the last decade. Yeah, I mean, no doubt that these resources can and will be way more flexible and will enable a completely different way of managing the grid. With that said, what do you make of IEA, which says, you know, with the phase out of nuclear power, basically renewables are not going to be able to fill in that gap and it's all going to be new gas and a ramp up of coal. You know, so in the medium term, you are looking at uh, um, fossil resources filling in that nuclear gap. Do you think that IEA is wrong on that because they're underestimating how these resources can scale both in size and in flexibility? Or are we looking at a medium-term challenge no matter what if you start phasing out a ton of nuclear? Look, I, I, I mean, I think that they're wrong, but not because they have their head in the sand. I mean, with the data that they have now and the data that they've looked at for the last five years— they've they're making predictions with the best of their ability but i think what you find is is that in general almost every political leader in europe wants to avoid gas right because gas comes from russia and they don't want to be more uh tied to russia and so as entrepreneurs continue to pitch them other ways of reaching the grid stability goals um other than building natural gas new natural gas plants um they often take those new suggestions yeah, I think, you know, this is the issue with forecasting is they can't predict what's going to happen on technology on the technology front. That's a huge piece of it. So, you know, the storage technology could be moving to weekly, monthly, seasonal storage that will really take care of a lot of these issues. You could say, like, as Jigger says, using transmission uh, for inertia. You know, there's so many things that are going to be coming into play as long as we continue to also create the condition for entrepreneurs to be able to participate and, and innovate. I think 
you know, we don't know what's going to happen really. And I think we will we will see some innovation that'll that'll take care of a lot of these issues if we make sure that we don't ice those guys out. Yeah. So we have another look at the, the, this this week on the Interchange podcast where we look at what happens to wholesale markets as you flood them with wind and solar. Um, what kind of, you know, shutdown you see of merchant plants like merchant natural gas plants, whether merchant wind and solar plants will continue to make sense, um, how that forces the economics of plant development downward, and then ultimately like how you restructure markets to accommodate all that. So it's a really interesting question. And I think it ultimately does come back to this market design question. Well, um, let's wrap up, tell you something you don't know, hear a little bit about what we're reading or what we're dealing with in our daily lives. Catherine, what's your story this week? Yeah, I have two quick things. One is that I did just get back from Dubai from this World Economic Forum Council meeting. And our council is looking at the future of energy, which is massive. It's a huge project. And, you know, we've come up with a vision and what are the policies to support it and how do we make sure there's energy access and then we transition from fossil fuels. But a big piece of it is also the human element. How do we deal not only with consumer engagement, but also with communities that are left behind by new technology? And we've talked about that a lot on this show. But there's a series of blogs that's been coming out um, from the World Economic Forum. And um, I did one on workers and you know, transitioning in Appalachia to clean energy jobs and um, a lot of the work that's going on in West Virginia. So it's something that you might want to look at because it t- it's a little different take on you know what's going to happen to the future of our, of our whole energy system. And it's gotten a lot of good positive feedback. So I'm happy about that. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention was that Pennsylvania's governor just signed a solar bill into law to try to make sure that there's more solar development in Pennsylvania. And the law has had, you know, people who are pro and against it. But I this morning, I got to meet at this uh, conference, this New Deal conference of leaders, uh, the state auditor from Pennsylvania. And he said, we are doing a state audit on climate change. And we're coming up with an action plan. And, and basically, he's the numbers guy. And, he, and it's just like what we've talked about, about having to make sure that you understand what your baseline is. And and have metrics um, for improvement, that's what they're going to do. And I think we're going to see Pennsylvania open for business for clean energy. They've gone through some interesting cycles there in Pennsylvania. Wow, that's a very (laughs) generous way of saying it. (laughs) Ed Rendell announced from the National Press Club they were going to be the leader of the entire area. And now that they've been passed by every state around them, I think they're catching up. Yeah, but uh, Pittsburgh has really become a a hub of innovation, and um, they're considered one of the cleanest cities. So I think you'll see some really good things happening there. Oh, no, I certainly hope so. And I I also hope that Virginia finally gets its head out of its ass and actually starts doing something interesting, right? It's it's shocking to me how backward Virginia has been for years on clean energy. Mm Mm-hmm. That's where I'm from, Jigger. (laughs) All right, Jigger, tell us something we don't know. Well, I, I wanted to just highlight, you know, I mean, Generate Capital does a lot of work outside of just um, solar and wind. And um, one of the w- areas that we've been looking at is uh, America's water pipes. I mean, there was a great story in the New York Times on this uh, November 10th by Hiroko Tabuchi, who does a lot of great work in our space, um, about how we've got about $300 billion of water pipes that we have to replace in this country. And what you're finding is there's actually a tremendous amount of technology that can cut that number in half um, just through sensors and, you know, smart water and sewer infrastructure and making sure that the existing infrastructure is used to its fullest extent. And, um, 
And so, I mean, I want to make sure that, uh, you know, everyone sees that, you know, there's actually a lot of uh, infrastructure spending happening in other areas. And it's one of the areas that I, um, I'm following pretty closely. The, the other thing I actually wanted to mention was I keynoted a um, award ceremony last week in Chicago that Midwest Energy News did um, honoring the 40 top Midwest energy leaders under 40 and was just hugely inspired by the folks that they found. So if you're interested in seeing that list, just go to MidwestEnergyNews.com. Jacob was in the Middle, middle West and Catherine was in the Middle East. And uh, I was sitting right here in Boston reading in the about middle of your couch. Yeah, right on my couch reading about the <laughs> COP conference. And uh, it's COP 23 now, international climate negotiations. We're in a new world with the Trump administration. And I've been to a couple COPs and have always seen all these kind of fringe protesters, th- these Americans who come and like talk about how CO2 is good for the planet and uh, protest, the counter protest the protests. And you know, just like had these weird booths, pop-up booths set up about, uh, you know, why climate change isn't happening or why CO2 is good for plants, things like that. And, uh, you know, as I was reading about the Trump administration and the only official delegation event it held was one with Peabody Coal explaining the benefits of coal. And then I look at the, the fabric of the administration and who's like pushing up the policy agenda on the energy and environment side, uh, it was a realization that the people who are were on the fringe, who nobody really cared about, are now uh, making policy in this administration. The weirdos on the uh, the side of these events are now central to America's climate policy. Just uh, grapple with that a little bit and tell me if you feel okay. But they're not beloved by the other people there. No, no, they're not beloved, but they have an in, they have an impact. I saw that France decided to pay our our fee for the the cop process, and uh, oh, the one other thing though to mention is that you know you started this Twitter thread around you know uh, guests that we should have on. Yeah, wow, what a great response! Thank you, Energy Twitter. Y'all are fantastic. Somebody said that I should be on. No, do they not know that I'm already? Do they not know I'm already on? Oh my god! Someone <laughs> I else didn't said see like that one. Someone else yeah. suggested topics that we've covered extensively. So you know, maybe everyone's not paying attention as well as as we think. But I must not be talking enough. Great, no, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we all love you, and you're dropping a lot of knowledge on this podcast. So I don't know who the heck is missing you. Um, well, anyway, thank you for those because we got a ton of really good uh, experts there suggested to us. And I think there's probably about 150, 200 names that we need to wade through. And we'll do that over the coming weeks and kind of figure out who we want to talk with in 2018. We have to do a March Madness competition. <laughs> Our bracket. We're going to have to put together some brackets. Yeah. I've yeah, never exactly. done a March Madness bracket, so I guess I'll start with this. Ah. Uh... You don't know what you're missing. I know. Well, I'd rather do it with uh, energy professionals than college basketball teams. So maybe this will get me started. Hey, thanks, everybody. Thanks for your um, comments on Twitter. So you can always follow all of us there on Twitter, on the Twitters. And uh, our Energy Gang feed is there as well. We'll post kind of what we're talking about each week. And you can interact with us and pose questions if you want. And uh, send us an email at podcast at greentechmedia.com. Catch us on every platform. Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, which most of you are, see it in the data, go and give us a five-star review. 
You probably hear it on other podcasts, and we say it every week. It's huge for helping us find new listeners. It bumps us up the rankings there, and uh, we appreciate your support. So we'll uh, we'll catch you next time. Catherine, have a good uh, rest of the week keeping up with taxes there in D.C. Absolutely. Is this fun for you? No. (laughs) (laughs) Taxes are not fun, but it's one of those things, you know, it's like death. It's one of the two things that's going to (laughs) happen. Jigger, are you going to be watching this uh, Tesla unveiling event, or are you going to spend time with your wife and kid? No, it's at like 11 o'clock Eastern. <laughs> I go to bed early. I'll, yeah, uh, I'll read about it in the morning. Yeah, same, same. I, I, we'll have Julia Piper there out there on the West Coast who will be covering it for us. So we'll check out that coverage. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. Thanks for joining us. 